the other way of looking at it, I mean, what, you know, more, more provocative than the Russian occupation of Crimea, more pro- provocative than the invasion of Ukraine proper, or more provocative than the use of nerve gas in the UK. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Frank Milburn. Frank, welcome back. Thanks, Sean. Nice to be back. Now, today I'm going to talk about something that I haven't until recently talked about for a few months. I've kind of been focusing mainly on UFOs and the paranormal and disclosure and things like that. But since I have a former military intelligence professional here, we decided that we would also talk a little bit about the current situation in Russia, Ukraine, which I haven't, again, talked about for a while. So, Frank, what's your assessment of how the current Ukrainian counteroffensive is going? Because news appears to be somewhat sparse right now about you know what stage it is, et cetera. Yeah, well, senior American military have said it's going slower than expected, but that, but that is to be expected given the conditions on the ground. The Ukrainians as well have indicated that maybe it's not going as fast as they uh, expect, but it's not really surprising. I mean, uh, they don't have air superiority. The Russians have superiority in artillery. And also as well, it's a, it's a very, very long front. And the Ukrainians effectively have to mount, uh, you know, combined arms operations, you know, to, to the breach a series of defensive lines, not just one, but several defensive lines in depth, which have infantry dug in, which have anti-tank guided weapons dug in. Russians are supported by, which are covering minefields. They've got, you know, all their artillery is pre-prepared. Their direct fire, their indirect fire is all prepared. And they have you know, the, an advantage in military aviation as well, specifically attack helicopters. So mm-hmm. traditionally in, in a kind of a, in a military strategy, you said that you need you know, a three to one advantage. You know, to take on a, a, a well-dug-in defender. And also as well, I mean, if you compare this like to the first Gulf War, one, you know, the Ukrainians, they don't have overwhelming air defense. You know, the Iraqis were pummeled by the Americans and uh, the Allied forces for weeks prior to any ground offensive. And also because of the space in the desert that the Allies had, they were able to do a big left hook and effectively cut off the Iraqi troops who were in Kuwait, which the Ukrainians can't do because they can't go through to Russian territory. And they can't use the American weapons that have been provided like on Russian territory. So effectively, they are doing, you know, full frontal assaults. Yeah, not only that, even if they did, I mean, there is certainly there is space to maneuver in that area of Ukraine. It's extremely flat, like especially in the south near Mariupol. But even if they were able to kind of use the space to do the big left hook, it's not like the Iraqis who didn't have satellites. The Russians will see them coming a mile away and have plenty of time to reposition. And frankly, I'm surprised that the Russians haven't done something to US satellites over in Europe, right? That's a big surprise to me because after a lot of the other stuff that has transpired, I don't want to say that they should do that. I'm just saying if I were Putin, I might do that, particularly right in the middle of this offensive. Yeah. And there's also hanging over everybody's heads, the potential intentional leak at a Zaporizhia nuclear plant, which would be another scenario that the Russians could use, having already done a, a deluge from the dam. That would be something else that they could do. Actually, you raise a good point. Who do you think is responsible for that blowing that dam? 
Well, I wasn't there. I didn't see it for myself, but from uh, reading of the kind of expert studies of it, it looks consistent with an explosion of munitions that were placed like within the dam itself, rather than external artillery or strike by munitions launched by aircraft. But at the end of the day, the Russians were responsible for it. They held the ground. They were responsible for the dam. So I'd have to put the onus on them. Well, that seems kind of unfortunate for them because a lot of their own blokes got taken by surprise by it as well. But it does benefit them. Like net-net, it does benefit them because it would slow down any potential yeah. counteroffensive. Yeah. Usually that's the lens I, I look through is who does it benefit the most? So yeah. we have that incident, but a few months prior, we had the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, which yeah. it, it kind of the U.S. blames Russia, Russia blames the U.S., and I fail to see any possible advantage to the Russians doing that. And of course, there's the Seymour Hirsch report that came out that says two divers, essentially, not Navy SEALs, but two divers did it. I think it was a unit based at Panama City, Florida. But the fact that the media was so incurious as to what the cause of that was, and also, the Russians are spending millions of dollars repairing it, which also kind of leads me to believe that they didn't do it. What's your view on that particular incident? My view on that incident is that the Russians wouldn't benefit from it. My view on that incident is that you know the Americans and the Brits would benefit from those explosions, essentially to, this is my speculation, essentially to force the Germans to wean themselves off and others to wean themselves off Russian gas by physically removing that specific means of delivery to force the reality upon reluctant NATO partners, because a lot of NATO was reluctant at that time to, to, to provide more support to Ukraine. So my money would be on, on the Americans and the Brits being behind that. Yeah, that's, that's just speculation. I didn't mention. It could, it could also be, I think the Brits could also very well be responsible for it. The Ukrainians, I don't think... While they would certainly have motivation to do it, I don't know if they have the capability to do it. I mean, I could be wrong, but we didn't even discuss them. And the other thing, too, is the reason why you keep it quiet is, or you, you deny it, is it's an act of war. I mean, there's no ends, ifs, or buts about it. So, again, I'm bracing for some sort of retaliation by the Russians, which... At least we haven't seen overtly, but you know they've been we've taking seen, a lot of hits and they've been pulling their punches. At least on the surface, you know, who knows well, what they're doing in private. But there've been reports from like you know the Danes and the Swedes, the Norwegians and the Finns that they're you know monitoring Russian ships in the Baltic, specifically in areas where there is you know kind of like undersea infrastructure, you know whether it's mm. uh, you know internet or anything else. But yeah, I mean, maybe those countries aren't aware who did it. Maybe they have an idea who did it, but they're not saying it publicly. And now would not be the time to say it publicly anyway. Yeah, I would also be curious as if the Germans were warned about it in advance, right? Yeah, um, I don't, yeah, I don't think so, because the Germans have always been considered to be very leaky since the end of the division of Germany uh, and having been, you know, sort of very, very penetrated by, uh, you know, Russian intelligence. I think the Germans are considered leaky in that regard and they wouldn't have been advised, just like the, the Hungarians considered to be uh, totally compromised. 
And also you had high level politicians like Schroeder who were kind of like dug in, you know, a bit like Berlusconi, sort of dug in very deeply with business interests in Russia, both friends of Putin. Schroeder very, very heavily dug in with Russian business interests. So I think the Germans in, in some are considered to be unreliable in terms of keeping a secret ahead of the game. Interesting. Because, I mean, even for them, that could be something that would disrupt the NATO alliance. Right? Yeah. Particularly. Yeah. I understand why we or the Brits may have done it. I, I thought it was a, a little bit too provocative in the sense that, you know, you're inviting some sort of a counterattack or. Yeah, but there may be other, the other way of looking at it. I mean, what, you know, more, more provocative than the Russian occupation of Crimea, more pro- provocative than the invasion of Ukraine proper, or more provocative than the use of nerve gas in the UK. <laughs> okay, you got me on nerve gas in the UK, right? I, I, I mean, that's I, an I'll give you that. Yeah, the other two, they're not directly attacking either US or British interests, right? They're attacking a, a neighbor, but yeah, using. What was the substance? Wasn't Novichok? Novichok. Yeah, and there's another one too. There's a because that's the one that stops the heart. There's another one that was there was a cafe that that they essentially irradiated. It was polonium. Polonium, yeah, poisoning. So, yeah, they've got a long they've got a long history of of Russian oligarchs opposed to Putin. You know, falling out of windows. The polonium case, they also, if you go all the way back to 1978, that uh, the Bulgarian distant Georgie Markov, who was killed with a poison umbrella on London Bridge. And I think the umbrella was provided by the KGB to the Bulgarian intelligence service who carried out that hit, you know, stabbed him with a, with a poison umbrella. Isn't that was that 1978. Stalin, isn't that how Stalin killed Trotsky in Mexico City? No, that was a nice pick, yeah. But I mean, they've got nice a long pick, history. Yeah. They've got a long history in London of, uh, uh, in the UK in general, of taking, uh, of taking out dissidents and opponents. Okay. All right. That's fair. That's clearly an act of war. So, I mean, it was so graphic as well because Lintvenenko, when he, when he was um, poisoned, I mean, he took like a couple of weeks to die, didn't he? It wasn't like a slow death. You know, the bloke was in hospital, like wasting away with the cameras on him. I mean, it was horrific. And then with the, the Novichok, they had to demolish the house and remove it like piece by piece where it had been on the door handle because the, the thing was so like persistent and, and deadly. I mean, it really, really was a big deal. Yeah, it, it basically, it's like a permanent WMD. It wasn't wide scale, but it effectively was a persi- persistent chemical attack, essentially, or bi- yeah. biological attack, right? So chemical. Yeah, it's persistent chemical, right? It's not non-persistent, kind of goes away over time. But yeah, if it's persistent like that, that's not, that's not great. All right, so what do you make of this... Prigozhin march on Moscow. Well, that's really, really interesting uh, because I've been hearing sort of two sides to that. I mean, most of the kind of so-called sort of Russia, you know, Kremlin watchers have been talking about uh, how it's undermined Putin and showed him to be weak and all the rest of it. But like, I've been speaking to somebody who was very, very senior and who used to advise the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, was the senior advisor. And they're a Kremlin Kremlinologist as well. Uh, they speak fluent Russian. They've been studying you know, Russia since long before I was born. And uh, they said to me, no, it's Maskarovka. And that uh, if Putin wanted Prigo- Priggy dead, that was, her, yeah, that was the dead. words that they used, they said that he'd be dead. You know, he'd, he'd have a poison umbrella or he'd be drinking polonium tea or Novichok or whatever it is, or, or he'd have it in his underpants, right? And they said that uh, they've got uh, Prigozhin where they want him, which is in Belarus. 
and with Wagner going there as well. And they, you know, they said, well, who, who benefits from it? But at the same time, I'm thinking, yeah, but, you know, there were aircraft shot down. I mean, did they allow those aircraft to be shot down by Wagner? And it does make Putin look very, very bad that these guys can, like you said, just rock up to Rostov on Don and then, you know, go up the road and stop 200 kilometers short of Moscow. It's not a good look. But Putin doesn't care about that. Like Putin cares about winning, right? Yeah. Like if it were like Biden or Trump or, you know, any American politician, they would be more concerned with optics than with winning. Yeah. Right. And Putin, it's just, it just strikes me that there were so few casualties. You can also come in with a narrative that, you know, you might have some rogue Russian general who's like, I'm going to take these, I'm going to take this guy out, right? Like this guy, this is like, why aren't we doing anything? I'm just going to take him out. So, you know, maybe Putin didn't authorize, maybe it was just somebody who was trying to demonstrate some aggressive initiative in taking this guy out. So, yeah, it's just in a system that tightly controlled, it really suspends disbelief to believe that this guy could just march. And by the way, the other thing that drove me nuts about the press reports is there were no reports about discrete numbers. How many troops? How many tanks? Right? And again, this points to something we talked about in earlier episodes, where it actually suits the U.S. intelligence community not to release those numbers because the numbers were probably small and it helps the ukrainian effort if you create this narrative that there's this massive army that's marching toward moscow which by the way also kind of suits putin's narrative a little bit too because you can say oh it weren't that big not that play that and at the end of the day everybody's focused on that when he's if he if prigozhin had just been exiled to Belarus, that's one thing. But the fact that all of Wagner's going there. Yeah. And that there were reports of potentially, you know, a year ago opening up a second front again, right, from Belarus. The fact that Putin recently moved TAC nukes up there potentially as a backstop. Assuming this is what's really happening, which it may very well, we acknowledge the fact that it very well might not be. But if I were Putin, and I did those two actions. What that tells me is by having TAC nukes in Belarus, you provide Lubashenko with the security to know that if he participates in a re-engagement in the Northern Front in yeah. Ukraine, that Putin can simply make a statement that Belarus is entering the conflict with me if you attack or advance into one inch of belarusian ground i will use these tech nukes on kiev yeah or in a nato country yeah or yeah or poland or, or or whatever so it if you just ignore what people are saying and just look at where all the chess pieces are moving and the timing is is also you let the ukrainian counteroffensive impale itself that's the time to strike from the north. 
open up another and then just do what you wanted to do in the first place which was rapidly advance to eve round up the leadership shoot them install your puppet and the war's over right and given kind of what we already did in the pipeline and things like that i don't i think putin has every well you know what you attacked me on the pipeline so try to attack me again see what happens yeah i say the things that struck me when the sort of pictures that the video of Prigozhin appeared in rostov on don my first thought was okay so i'm waiting for somebody in moscow like the commander of the dzhinsky division which is tasked with guarding moscow right so i'm expecting some russian general in moscow to say right we've taken moscow and in collaboration with Prigozhin, because you don't start a coup if you're going to start a coup you don't start it like thousands of miles away do you, you start it in the capital city generally right right because um, there's not a lot between rostov and don and moscow like you're a sitting duck and if you don't have any air assets you're exactly. going to get smoked you're going to get completely smoked and from what I picked up, I mean, it's a long way between Rostov and Don and Moscow. So they had like, what, a couple of uh, units with surface to missiles. They probably had like half a dozen tanks and maybe a dozen maximum kind of like, you know, armored personnel carriers. And it was in, I think, three or four columns. And most of the blokes were in kind of like, you know, army lorries or commercial vehicles. So that doesn't strike me as a particularly potent force to cause a turn of, of regime in, in Moscow. By the way, where did you get those numbers? Because I, again, I didn't look too hard, but I was not able to find, because that's nothing. That's not even a motorized rifle company of equipment. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. It's like, I mean, you can't do anything with that. It's completely exactly. inert. Exactly. And also, I mean, even assuming they got to Moscow, I mean, Moscow is a big place. There's millions of people. I mean, it's a built up area. You round up all the cops, you give them all AKs, they've got snipers and the specialist them on units, you stick them on the roofs. And, you know, with 2,000 blokes, if you had 2,000 blokes, you're not going to be able to take the capital city. You'd have to start the coup or the uprising or whatever it is from within the capital city, seize the key points, not start thousands of kilometers away. That's what I found so, weird. So where did you find those numbers? I mean, I'm sure they're probably out there somewhere, but... From different podcasts and different newspaper articles, and also just like studying like the footage of what I saw. Yeah. Yeah, just counting, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I I thought it was small. I didn't realize it was that small. So I would have said it was a 40% chance it was a deception operation. Now I'd say it's 80%. I mean, it yeah, just I mean, makes it's not, sense. It's not like you've got a, a whole armored division with like, you know, you've got like 200 tanks and, and you turn those and, and you can somehow get to Moscow. The other thing I was thinking, well, if you haven't got anybody in Moscow to help you, you've got a long way to drive along the road. I mean, wouldn't you want to get your blokes, wouldn't you want to get the Air Force on your side so you can maybe fly the blokes closer as well? That didn't seem to happen. And the other thing that, again, adds to that narrative is I know damn well there are more than six tanks and whatever, 20 people in Wagner, right? But you don't pull those people away from the front well, there's a counteroffensive if it's a deception play, right? You use this to reposition. And then, you know, if I were looking at satellites right now, I'd be looking at where the Wagnerian forces were and just watch as they start to peel off and divert north into. And by the way, for that sort of operation where you're trying to go in and hunt down the leadership, you need former Spetsnaz people. You know, you need a highly skilled operators as opposed to traditional kind of dumb infantry or even the 
VDV paratroopers, which took heavy losses, at least in the initial days, as they were just shot out of the sky. So, yeah, it was all very, very bizarre. The media is not really asking any of these questions or just remarkably incurious. So it's almost like we know that they know that we know what they're doing, right? (laughs) And there's sort of this back and forth anyway. Yeah, what do you, I mean, what do you make it? What do you think the probability of this is a strategic deception? I keep an open mind to it. I mean, I have to when somebody who's a senior, uh, as I spoke to, is telling me so. And it's quite interesting, a sort of like a lone voice when everybody else, every other kind of like so-called expert pundit is saying that, you know, it, it was a genuine sort of uprising, not a coup, but an uprising. But I keep an open mind. Um, the fact that Progosian is still alive the fact that uh, Wagner, they still seem to be intact, although I've heard that some of their business may be shut down. But also there's the other issue that people don't think about is that Wagner cr- generates a hell of a lot of money, right, for the Kremlin from its operations in Africa and, and Venezuela and other places. And, you know, it, it's in Syria as well. I mean, it's a money-making enterprise. So I don't see them getting rid of Wagner because they make so much money for the Kremlin and everybody's taking their cut. And people forget that. Well, my understanding is is at, at least the Wagner units in Ukraine have actually it was yesterday. I, I should have checked it. They had until yesterday to uh, implement the agreement that was set up with yeah. Prigozhin. So I haven't seen anything on the news, but I haven't been looking too hard either. But it sounds like he accepted whatever these terms were. And Wagner, also the operatives in Wagner, have to decide whether or not to join the Russian military, because that was part of the agreement where, you know, if they have these six-month contracts, if they have three more months in their contract, they're going to be part of the Russian military during that time. So if you're in Wagner and you're finished five months and you have one more month, fine, fine, whatever. But if you just signed up, and you've done a month, and you're looking through the barrel at five months in the Russian military, most likely as cannon fodder, because that's the first place these guys will be sent to the front faster than traditional conscripts will be, because, again, they're perceived as a potential threat after the war, so you might as well just grind them up first. It's just the logic of kind of Russian military affairs is always very straightforward. <laughs> yeah, well, it's right? like through a dark glass, through a, through a glass darkly, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's very easy to predict kind of where they're going to go. So where do you think that this conflict is going to head? Like in the next, after this Ukrainian offense of which they might make modest gains, they might make no gains, but either way, they're going to expend a lot of resources when they are not resource rich vis-a-vis the Russians who have a three to one personnel advantage. So unless they kill three Russians for every Ukrainian that dies in this counteroffensive, which generally doesn't happen in offensives, unless they do better than that, it will not be successful, right? In terms of I mean they might seize some land and things like that. So to me it seems like the Ukrainian end game is to take as much ground as they can and then seek some sort of agreement. The Russians, on the other hand, 
I think Putin just needs to wait until there's a frozen conflict and then steadily let the Ukrainians wither on the vine and five, 10 years from now, stage a coup and all is well for the motherland. How do you think this plays out? Yeah, I mean, I think the Ukrainians have been very public and that's, you know, realistic or not, you know, they want all the territory back, right? Including Crimea. I'm worried about, you know, the, in the current offensive. I mean, things are going slow. Yes, I expected that. But also as well, you know, the Russians, you know, they've been able to lose a lot of guys, uh, a lot of personnel, but they're still in the game. Whereas the Ukrainians, as you said, they don't have, you know, that level of human resources and they've already lost a lot of very, very experienced people. Yeah, they are getting more trained up, you know, by Western allies. But I worry, yeah, about it going into a frozen conflict, especially if there is some kind of incident around the, the, the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. And that somehow we end up in a Donbass situation part two, where you've got, uh, you know, like front lines dug in, intermittent artillery duels, and, you know, just another frozen conflict. The Russians rebuild up their forces and then attack again in five years or 10 years or try and stage a coup. So very difficult to say. I don't think it's going to be over by Christmas, that's for sure. And a lot is going to depend on, you know, how long NATO allies continue to support Ukraine. But I don't think the Ukrainians are going to give up anytime soon. And I think even if the offensive fails, I think they're going to go on fighting. I mean, they don't really have a choice, do they? It's kind of genocide or death. And a lot of these people, you know what it's like, you're in the military. If you've had, like, I don't know, your wife raped or your village is occupied, your grandparents have been killed. Yeah, you, you don't know, care. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna you, fight. You're going to fight. You're going to keep on fighting on. You're going to keep on fighting till you're done. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and then and, Russians don't have the same mentality, right? None of them want to be there. They don't understand. The conflict. I mean, there are some I'm sure who'd be dug in who've who've had their friends killed by Ukrainians and, and things like that. They sort of get locked in that way. But what about the polls? Do you think there's going to be an expansion of the conflict? Because it sounds like the polls are jumping at the bit to kill Russians. Well, well, yeah, I mean the polls are, you know, obviously they're right next door. Also, as well, they've had like you know, all the uh, sort of refugees have been forced across the border by or the so-called refugees by the Belarusians. And Poland obviously taking it very, very seriously. I mean, they've just spent billions and billions buying lots of tanks and artillery from the, the South Koreans. And they're buying more kit as well from the Americans. So they're taking it very, very seriously. I mean, look, they've got you know Belarus on one side, they've got a border with Ukraine, and then they've got like the, you know, the Kaliningrad enclave in the north. They've got the Suwalki Gap uh, to the Balts, which is a, you know, a strategic choke point. So the Poles have to take it very, very seriously. And I mean, they are... They are kind of like the victims of history in a way. If you look, you know, the last few hundred years, the Poles have always occupied that position where they've been vulnerable to one empire or another. And I really don't think that they want to go that route again. Yeah, they almost seem stronger than the Germans now. It sounds like the Germans don't really... They've had their defense over the last 50 years subsidized by the UK and the United States. And it sounds like they're not necessarily i mean they're not ready they're not ready if the russians decide to go a little bit farther than anyone would expect well the germans have they've eviscerated all their armed forces since sort of like 1989 plus on top of that the german sort of anti-war culture which they've had since the end of world war ii so the bundeswehr i mean the bundeswehr is very good but it's been absolutely eviscerated i mean how many of its aircraft are, are, are uh, you know are available at any one time the number of tanks it has significantly reduced you know they used to have thousands and thousands yeah, they don't take it seriously. The Poles do because they're right in it. The Balts take, take it very seriously too because they're right on the front line. So, Yeah, the, fin the Finns and, you know, who would have thought that they'd be part of NATO at this point? 
right? That's another huge border that the Russians are going to have to. Yeah. Now you you mentioned earlier the bolts were reporting that these Russian ships were messing with undersea cabling and infrastructure. What do you think the Russians are doing down there? Well, I think the Russians would be looking at a situation, you know, and kind of like you know the the TTW transition to war. The Russians, you know, they've had. Nord Stream done, so they'd be looking at you know infrastructure that you know that they can take out themselves. But the reports came really from the the, the Swedes, the Norwegians, and, and the Finns. I mean, in any case, they keep a close eye on Russian submarines and, and what's going on and what's coming out of Kaliningrad, especially and, and the Baltic Sea Fleet. But yeah, I think you know the Russians are scoping those kind of operations they can carry out to damage infrastructure. I, I mean, it would be logical. I would if I were them. What about Transnistria and uh, Moldova and Transnistria? Very interesting ones. I mean, there's a very small Russian sort of residue garrison. I think it's only about I don't know three to six hundred blokes in uh, in oh, Transnistria. I thought it was like fifteen hundred. I thought it was like fifteen hundred, but maybe yeah. I mean, it's well, well like a, a battalion and a support group. How combat effective are they? I don't know. I think it would be cause more problems if the Transnistrian border with Ukraine were to come under Russian control. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. But they've still got, you know, the, the propensity to cause mischief. And the Moldovans, you know, they said a while back, a couple of months ago, that they were concerned about Russian influence in the country and the attempts to sort of subvert uh, the state. So that is a pressure point, certainly. Um, and also another one is Serbia and Kosovo, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Russians will be, you know, gleeful about that. And also as well, the Bosnian Serbs in the confederation with the Croats and the Bosniaks in the former Yugoslavia, right? So the Bosnian Serb nationalists there, you know, it's kind of sort of subverting the process, which is already a weak government with the Bosniaks and the Croats. So those are all kind of pressure points as well that Russia can use because it, it ties down NATO sort of, you know, political and potentially military effort as well. What other courses of action do you think the Russians have to strike back at NATO in a plausible, deniable way? Well... I think they'd have to be very careful, and I'm speculating here, but I think it's going to be much more under ra- under the radar than when they did like the Novichok in the UK. I think it's going to be much more about uh, subverting processes, maybe industrial capabilities, maybe some kind of like random acts of terrorism that they support. But I think they're going to be very wary about committing anything that can, can be construed as an overt act of war against NATO, because I think NATO has shown that it does have teeth. And that it does have unity and that, you know, by invading Ukraine, you know, even the Finns come running and knocking on the NATO door. So I think the Russians have got to be very careful. But, you know, I I never underestimate them. There's that fantastic series of papers. Uh, I think it's from the Center for Strategic and International Studies or one of them, one of the American think tanks. It's called the Kremlin's Playbook. And it's the details over the last sort of decade, all their kind of influence operations like throughout Europe. I mean, they're very, very devious, very, very devious, the Russians. They're very good at yeah, I don't put anything past them. I don't underestimate them. I mean, they didn't seem to be that great during Euromaidan. I mean, they had everybody goes, oh, it was a CIA-inspired coup. But, you know, there are a lot more FSB officers, to my knowledge, who are actually in Kiev at the time, trying to keep Ukraine kind of like, you know, pro-Russian. And also as well, the FSB seemed to have done, you know, pretty dismally within Ukraine as well, because the Russians expected to do what, like a 100-hour operation, maybe a week max. And that, you know, collaborators who are on the FSB payroll would kind of come out of the cracks in Kiev and help affect a Russian takeover. And that didn't happen. So I think the FSB has lost a lot of uh, of respect and clout within Russia. 
So what's the difference? What's the difference between FSB and SVR? Like what's yeah. Yeah, they were both former, they're both sort of offshoots of, of what was then the KGB. The FSB is like the internal security service, basically the counterintelligence and security service. And then the SVR is a foreign intelligence service. And then you've got the, the GRU, which is the military intelligence service. Yeah, which also okay. carries out foreign espionage operations. But to, to my knowledge, GRU now have much more sway over Ukrainian operations than FSB do. Before, Ukraine was kind of considered like by the Russians as kind of like a near, Russian near abroad. So the FSB were running it. But they uh, have like lost their shine and, and groove kind of stepped in. Okay, so the FSB <laughs> is not entirely like, but it's kind of like FBI, sort of. Yeah, probably more like MI5. Yeah, uh, and then MI6 would be like uh, the SDR. SDR. Okay, all right, well, that makes sense. Except both FSB and SVR and Groove have their own Spetsnaz units, which they can use both internally in Russia and for foreign operations. Uh, a bit like, you know, the Special Activities Division, the CIA, right? The CIA have the Special Activities, DIA have their guys, Foreign Office have their kind of go-to unit that they use. But the the FSB, the GRU and SVR, they, they have permanently based, permanently allocated Spetsnaz units, which are part of their orbit. Yes. So how does that work? Are they recruited by the Russian military and then assigned to units that are permanently attached or is it does that fsb grow these own spetsnaz units you know from the ground up like they join the fsb and then are spetsnaz yeah well spetsnaz is a general term like sirec reconnaissance in, in israel but my understanding is a lot of the guys who end up in like you know with the FB, fsb or the sbr there'll be people who've come either through they've either come from uh desant vdv or they've come from military spetsnaz units Okay, so it's it's like the CIA's special activities, yeah, or, or, or I think it's special operations group SOG, a paramilitary side, right? Yeah, and then it's a special activities center which does SOG, but it also does. And by the way, this all a lot of stuff may have changed. They also have like the political activities division, which is a subsegment yeah. of of uh, special activities center. Which who knows, you know, th- those guys do like orange revolutions and this and that like maybe maybe i don't know so all right so how do you think this thing i mean we talked a little bit about this earlier but how do you think what do you think putin's next move is after this counteroffensive peters out well assuming it does peter out because to my knowledge the ukrainians they haven't committed their newest and best forces yet you know, they've lost some Western vehicles, but they still got the bulk of the guys that they've trained up and equipped and they haven't committed them yet. I think they're still probing. I'd, I'd call it like sort of reconnaissance in force. Yeah, yeah. But assuming it, 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 it I think Putin is going to look for, for, for the easy way, which is a frozen conflict. And mm-hmm. even if, you know, I don't think he really cares so long as he's in Ukraine, even if it freezes and there's like a front line, just like in the, the Donbass, He'll just wait. He'll wait just to wait the Ukrainians out and try and exhaust them. You know, that's what he'll do. Yeah. I mean, in the that's, absence, that's what I would. Yeah, in the absence, I, would do, because I, I don't think that he's got real. At the moment, I don't think he's got real offensive options himself, right? Because we saw that around Bakhmut, right? Recently, okay, the Ukrainians lost a lot of guys, but like, you know, the Russians really didn't gain a lot. What? So they gained like you know a completely destroyed, bombed out city, right? Which is when there's the better defensive positions to be had. 
I think the Ukrainians held on to that more out of line of like prestige and kind of like, you know, a patriotic honor than anything else because they didn't want to cede ground. But I don't think the Russians have a, an offensive capability at this moment. But I think well, they'll, they'll be looking for a frozen conflict and then they can basically rebuild their forces, whether it takes, you know, five years, 10 years, whatever. That's what they'll, that's what they'll be looking for and looking for uh, hopefully Trump or similar administration in the US, which has far less propensity to support the Ukrainians and for the NATO allies to get bored with it all and you know, bored with the costs of it. Time is certainly on Putin's side. The only thing that's not on his side is demographics. Because yeah. that, you know, there's going to be fewer and fewer fighting age men, not only because they're being lost in the current conflict, but also because, you know, Russian women are having fewer and fewer babies. So, yeah, I don't know how this thing ends, but it's like it's going to be this miasma of like a, a conflict that just gets styed and rots. I don't know. All right, my friend, I think we probably exhausted this topic, but we had a few have nails on the head. Yeah, I think I, I hope the Ukrainians do well. My worry is, though, I think they only have like nine brigades that are. And as you know, a brigade ain't that big. Yeah. And the Russians have I mean, that's what they do, like from the going all the way back to the Battle of Kursk, Prokhorovna and all that, like they dial in defenses in depth at yeah. pretty well, like they're. They're experts at that. And they also have, you know, much more or use artillery much more than any Western power does. So, I mean, we're more precise, but they just they can put more steel on the ground than we can. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I hope they hope they do well, but I think the Ukrainians just need to make a, a huge advance and then try to get this to the peace table. Otherwise, it's going to just take a long time and rot. I hope they can cut off uh, Russian forces in the east from Russian forces in Crimea by going through Vladar or somewhere like that, maybe down to Mariupol, I hope so. But, you know, like you said, the Russians are uh, good at defense. All right, my friend. Always a pleasure. And I really enjoyed our, our talk. Likewise. Thank you very much, Sean. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new. Oh,